You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply disaster tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, repeated three meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. I've been on this huge NATO kick for the last several months. As you know, gave that presentation back in September. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we had John Spencer from West Point talking about the Mumbai attacks that he gave at that NATO conference. And now we're, we're pushing this conversation even further because we have Kyle King on here. He's actually in the Ukraine right now. We're going to be talking a little bit about his perspective and how he's worked with NATO and what he's doing. So it's really exciting. Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm really... Uh... Really interested to talk about this sort of issues today. Yeah, so the U.S. to the Ukraine, I understand it's uh, nighttime there right now, so thank you so much for uh, joining on. Um, you know, we had a conversation uh, just a couple weeks ago, actually. This is why this uh, conversation is going to be spurred on here about the differences between the U.S. perspective and the, you know, the international perspective of what emergency and disaster services is. But before we get into that, can you kind of share for us some of your background and what you're doing? Uh, you know, why are you in the Ukraine right now, for example, and uh, kind of the background behind your company and, and your your goals? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, you know, my name is Kyle King. I'm the managing director of Capacity Building International, and we, I like to say, we work at the intersection of crisis, conflict, and emergency management. And from my view. Uh, I think emergency management is really a great tool to increase stability, especially in post-conflict and what we might call operational environments, you know, in different countries. And so I actually started my career out in the U.S. Marine Corps, and I spent a few years in the Marines, and I actually went into the U.S. Department of Defense, fired emergency services. I spent 17 years in the emergency services, uh, left there as assistant chief of operations and training, and then actually started working with NATO in the civil emergency planning field. And when I did that, I spent about eight years with NATO, and that was within the context of using so emergency planning or what we might call emergency management uh, within what we call a security sector reform environment. So supporting NATO as a civilian in a, what they called an operational environment as they trained the security forces, trained the military. And then the question was really about 
how do you integrate the military and the security forces in domestic emergency response mm. and national response planning? Uh, from there, uh, after I left NATO, I founded uh, Capacity Building National. We still continue to work internationally and support U.S. government efforts in terms of building partner capacities, especially in the disaster management and emergency planning field. And currently, yes, that's correct. I am in Ukraine. I am seconded to the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, and I'm currently in Ukraine with the special monitoring mission as well. So it's sort of a, a second hat that I'm wearing at the moment. That's pretty awesome. And uh, you know, it's it's interesting because we have had military and first responder and all these other uh, counterparts on here, and especially talking about the Mumbai attack and terrorism. Um, but getting more into like that conflict zone and or recovery mission, you know, in our our side of the house, when we think of recovery from a conflict zone, we're thinking more of that humanitarian uh, aid that that gets out there. And I love the idea that. Uh, military personnel are looking at the tactics of emergency management, what emergency management can do to reduce um, impacts of disaster, whether that disaster is a man-made incident or, or you know, war, literally war. Um, and, and especially with Europe being um, kind of the highlight for the last several years with uh, huge migrations into Europe and, and what that, does that look like in the conflicts of other locations now spilling over um, into other nation states and having to worry about that. And, you know, of course, uh, Russia and China making moves. And, um, and I could ask all kinds of questions about that, um, especially with, um, what was that report that came out just a few years ago about, we have six years until China tries to take uh, Taiwan. And, um, you know, they're trying to follow that same blueprint of what Russia did with uh, Crimea. And so there's a lot of uh, questions around that. Uh, but to pull back, just focus on like basic terminology here for a second. Um, you know, we have been focusing on this podcast a lot about the meaning of words. And um, one of the things I've been calling out is the misnomer of emergency management. You know, are we, are we more ma managers or we coordinators? What are we? And the other, the other side of that is emergency. Like, you know, we think of first responders when we think of emergency, but it's, it's usually much bigger than that. And uh, as you noted to me a couple of weeks ago, Europe calls that crisis management, right? You don't necessarily call it emergency management over there. You call it crisis management. Is there differences based off of your experiences between the U.S. and the international community of what they think emergency management or crisis management is? You know, that's a really good, great question. I think that there's um, terminology is incredibly important. So once you leave like the borders of the United States, like the terminology changes. So outside the borders of the US, there's a lot of talk about disaster risk reduction, you know, Sendai framework under the UN and, and everything else that goes along with that. And so there's a global sort of perspective on disaster risk reduction and what that means. And then you start encountering terms in, in that response sort of phase, you, you encounter terms such as civil protection, civil emergency planning, crisis management, and other aspects like that. Emergency management is still there, but it's not within the context that we know of as in the United States. And what was really challenging for me when I first started working internationally is sort of, you know, coming, coming to an understanding of what that means in terms of what we are indoctrinated with in the United States in, in terms of understanding FEMA, understanding national response plan and frameworks and everything else that goes along with that. But then you encounter different societies where, you know, there's no reference point for that. 
And especially when, you know, working internationally in terms of in post-conflict and operational environments where everybody's focused and spending millions of dollars in terms of building police forces, rebuilding rule of law, court systems, mm. you know, building the military and security infrastructure, but nobody builds fire brigades or fire departments, for example, <laughs> you know, pre-hospital care. Immediate needs of critical infrastructure need to be protected. Yeah. Exactly. And so it, it was really difficult to try and understand like what programs were actually functional and operating in terms of building out these capacities. And you'll find them, there's really not any that are doing that. And, and it just really became an issue of trying to understand all the terminolo terminology that's surrounding all these different things. And what I have sort of discovered and found is that we all are sort of have the same intent in what we're trying to do, which is build, you know, more you know, resilient societies, if we want to call it that, or building more safe communities. But at the same time, we're using different terminology to phrase that. And it, and it goes through everything. It's, it's, you know, it's pervasive throughout the entire society. So it's issues, you know, it's issues with legislation, terminology and legislation, you know, the entire, you know, authorities and frameworks and who's responsible for what. And, and it, it's really sort of a challenge, but it's interesting because it makes you absolutely question what you've been taught right? Is your frame of reference actually the right one? And, and sometimes there is no frame of reference. There is no right answer. And it's absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah, that, uh, that's a, a big call out actually, because um, whether I was at the NDEM conference a week ago or whatever it was, uh, whether I'm talking to experts on this podcast, there's a recurring theme that's happening. Something that we're challenging ourselves um, in our company is that there's no standardization. If I go to the UK, if I was spending time in the UK, we have gold, silver, bronze. If I'm here in the, you know, the US, we, we call those typed incidents. But even in the US, I can ask an emergency manager, what's a type one incident? And you know, they can give me a hundred different answers. A, a prime example is asking, is 9-11, uh, what happened to the twi uh, Twin Towers, was that a type one incident? Well, of course, because of complexity and new and game changer, whatever. Well, geographically, and it was a recovery mission. And, you know, in terms of like a response, it actually wasn't that difficult of a response. And so, you know, even that's like 9-11, like the, the thing that changed the entire world. You know, let's let's try to figure out what these types mean. And you're right, that lack of standardization. So when you get in there, especially dealing with conflict, and there is no framework, there's no baseline. What do you start focusing on? What is your personal baseline of what you build off of? That's, a, that's another really good question. And it really, every situation is, is very unique. And mostly what we start with is at an interagency level. And so there's a large assumption of like, okay, you've got something, is it functioning? And then we want to start looking. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's a basic question, right? But it, it's yeah. kind of what we got to know. So we go in and we start assessing, okay, do you have a capability to respond? It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter, you know, if they're wearing, you know, the same uniform or not, or if it's mostly a military role, that's a first response, you know, but we want to look at it first. Are you capable of responding? Are you capable of addressing the, those needs? You know, and in terms of more of a military context, which you've heard probably before, which is, you know, can you shoot, move and operate? Can you do these things? Can you be able to provide, you know, communications and support to, to, society, to society inside that, uh, in your country? And so we really started at like an interagency level and it's a bit more of a top-down approach. Uh, and then we start looking at sort of 
the risk mapping, map, mapping and the hazards and everything else that go along that within inside that country. And then we look at sort of a capabilities assessment. Okay, if this is where we are, this is our baseline. Can you at least cooperate? Can you function and work together, even though that might be in a limited capacity? And then we, of course, look at all the risk and hazards, and then we see the response mechanisms and what they are responding to on a daily basis. And then we look at a capabilities assessment and see, okay, where can we go from here? And then how we can build those capabilities to increase the, the readiness and the response for the, the national you know, um, agencies and things like that. And so we have to really start with where they are. And this has become a real issue in terms of providing, say, partner assistance from the U.S. to other countries, which is we sort of walk in with this assumption that we have the answers, that we know what we're talking about, that, well, we have FEMA and we have everything else and, and you know, you just need to do this. Or it's the application of technology that will fix all your problems. And more often than not, what I have found is that technology is often not the answer because it's the decision makers that are often, you know, sort of hindering the development in these areas. And so this is where, you know, it takes a, it takes a moment to step back and try and to assess and identify where you, the perspective that you're coming from and then how, you know, how does that apply across the nation and the people that you're talking to? It's a lot of sort of what we call cultural intelligence and making sure that you're actually, you know, got the right frame of mind when you're talking to people. That's um, I, I like that that process. It's kind of the process that I go through as well. So uh, immediately addressing competencies, capabilities, the ability to deliver, and then providing a what I would call a hazard vulnerability assessment, looking at all man-made and natural threats. And then if it's like organizational based, I mean, you could even do this with uh, society at large, but like just like a general impact, uh, business impact analysis of like, if, if this gets hit by something, is it strong enough to, to basically not have an issue? And if it's going to have an issue, how quick can you, uh, bounce back? Now you were talking about earlier, uh, about this concept of like resiliency and maybe a difference in, in resiliency of how, how good people are. And so that's like kind of the, the reasoning behind disaster tough is we want disaster tough communities. Like, as you know, how many years has it been where the keyword has always been, we want resilient communities. You want to bounce back. I don't want to have to bounce back. Right. And so I, I think what you're saying is the same thing we're kind of saying is we need to create systems in place, disaster risk reduction, understand what, what resources we have available so we can and, you know, start preventing things from escalating. And if you can't escalate, of course, resiliency has its part but it shouldn't be the goal, right? The goal should be stopping. And if you don't, if we don't know the, what the resources are, or we're starting to talk to some of those, uh, you know, partners, those stakeholders, and they are over promising, but they, we know they're going to under deliver, then there's, there's another issue there. And so competency, capacity, hazard vulnerability assessments, I think that's a phenomenal place to start. So if you've done that in some of these other different areas that you're looking at, and there's really no standardization and you're trying to create systems in place to protect infrastructure and people, how does that come into play now in the Ukraine? Because it still seems that there's a ton of tension between Ukraine, the U S and, you know, Putin, you know, Russia. And so what is your general role there? And, um, what are you essentially, what are you in charge of doing? Are you in charge of building up those fire departments? Are you in charge of creating systems or are you trying to figure out how to mitigate those in case something happens, mitigate issues? 
Yeah, I think before sort of getting to that Ukraine issue, I think we have to understand that there's many layers to resilience, right? Mm. And I think I heard one of your previous podcasts that sort of, uh, you know, just the discussion around resilience is often very confusing because nobody really can sort of do, agree on a definition. Yeah. Right? And we have to sort of have an understanding that in terms of like with NATO, right? At least in my opinion, anyway. So in terms of with NATO, the issue of resilience started coming up because of the events like in 2014 with Ukraine, with hybrid warfare, undermining society and general governance capabilities, that it became an issue with NATO in terms of how do we build more resilient societies. Now that has evolved over the years, and, and now we're starting to see a bit of a convergence between the emergency management community and also this resilience discussion that's happening. And so in recent summits from NATO, you know, they've issued out these uh, resilience baselines, which in our previous discussion is very similar to the community lifelines from FEMA, right? So right. then we start really looking at the issues of, okay, let's look at communications and infrastructure and all these sort of pillars of society that we need to effectively govern. And this is where NATO sort of has moved into this resilience space in terms of societal resilience, which mm. is again, very hard to define, right? When we're talking about no, terminology. What does that you know? even mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's extremely difficult. You know, if you and I can't really define it, or we just have a def, you know, a, a discussion about what it actually means, imagine having 30 nations sit around and try and define what it means. And it just becomes utterly complex. And the challenge, again, in terms of with NATO as well, is not only just having this abstract sort of societal resilience thing, but it's also what can actually, what, what can NATO actually contribute to that discussion? And then that, that is where it starts to get into that civil emergency planning field within NATO and sort of your Atlantic Disaster Response Coordination Center, where they can offer disaster relief from other nations and things like that. But then it gets into an issue of where you get to these, say, more political discussions at a diplomatic level about what it means and the good things that we should be doing and that we're striving for. But ultimately, at the end of the day, everything is a national responsibility. The United States must implement these things. These other countries must implement these things, you know, and, and agree to these guidelines in order for it to be, you know, and try and be more resilient uh, in the eyes of NATO. And so it's a challenge because we get this sort of top-down focus, which is very vague and sort of diplomatic. And then we get that community piece that you were talking about. How can we, you know, have a more resilient community and a disaster-tough community? And how can we put those two things together? They're right. not too far apart, actually. But yeah. the, the difference is the fact that, you know, we've got to pull these two different strands together. And, and that's why I, you know, I'm happy to be here today because we're actually working on two opposite ends of that spectrum trying to, trying to connect these two dots. Yeah, and it's in, interesting thinking of, um, I like how you said they're, they're not too far off. I, I think the considerations are different. Um, what's my immediate consideration? One's probably much more, I mean, obviously it is. It's much more political. Has it, you know, strategic planning? Another one's like immediate life-saving, life-sustaining missions. And so how, how can these mesh? I find for myself that if they don't mesh, though, you have a huge problem, um, whether it's a lack of resources or people don't get it, and so they're extending the response. And so, like, there's this, there's this huge play here, and I think the pandemic has really highlighted that if this is misaligned, then you're going to have a, a bunch of other issues. And I think that's what an emergency manager can really do is just pull them a little bit closer together and, and see what's happening there. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. Actually, I have, I have two things you've mentioned, um, one about uh, military and then two about technologies. And you were mentioning how technologies versus leadership, um, you know, there's, 
you said it wasn't so much about technology it's about leadership i've been finding on my end that leadership has historically an issue with embracing technologies to support the decision making process i.e i'm just going to follow my gut here when there's a there's a whole team of gis people down the hall that can tell you actually where the flood's going to go and how to get that competency at level up and so can you just clarify maybe what you meant and um, what leaders, especially if leaders are listening to the show, what they can do to n- not fall short, essentially? Well, that's been my experience that when we go to different countries and we start having discussions at an interagency level, and we start talking about cooperation, we talk about roles and responsibilities, and maybe the legislation is defined, maybe it's not really defined as well as it should be. And so we end up into a discussion of where and, and let me step back a moment. In most of these environments, there's multiple actors, right? So there's generally multiple parties that are trying to help. Many different nations, maybe it's USAID, maybe it's other programs that are out there. Mm. But anyway, you'll get into a space of where there's often a solution and an easy fix, right? So if we just buy this GIS system and then set them up for a year, they're going to be all good to go. They can implement it. We'll train a couple people. And it's going to be great and they're going to use it and then we're, the world would be perfect right and the, the unfortunate reality is if, if people <laughs> sort of stick around yeah. long enough is that uh, the people you train change jobs they don't have a budget to continue the license for the commercial software and then all of a sudden it's sort of just sitting on the shelf somewhere no longer in use and they revert back to where they were which was simply they you know talk to each other and so the application of technology is always is a nice idea, but you have to have that fundamental human component on, behind it. So then it's like, okay, are you financially sustainable? Is this a sustainable decision that you're going to implement? Mm. You know, and you'll find very, I mean, the extreme sort of version of that conversation is they want helicopters to help with uh, wildland support. And you're like, okay, well, that's going to eat up like 40% of your budget. You know, that's not really Surprise. a sustainable decision, but it looks great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you get into these sort of conversations and at that interagency level, especially when there's conflict among the institutions, the technology isn't helping its people. And so having to sit there and, and to work these things out is, is sometimes not a quick solution. It's not an easy solution. You can't simply buy something off the shelf and, and enable a capability, but it requires people working together because that affects everything sort of top down. So the leadership, it's the budget, it's the people, it's the resources, human resources, you know, and, and, and resource allocation that goes along with that. And especially that. even with legislation. Yeah. I love that answer. The, um, my one funny story about, uh, GIS is, uh, we were on a coordination call for a mass flooding event in 2017 for like Midwest floods, like Missouri. And, um, me and my counterpart got on there and she goes, okay, so I'm, I'm usually the sit, uh, situational unit lead siddle. And uh, they gave me a GIS computer and now I'm going to be doing GIS for the disaster. And I was like, Hey, that just means it has more Ram. Like it's not a, you can't do GIS from like, what is this device? She had no idea. And uh, so I'm like, Hey, let me give me, let me help you out with a a couple of different resources, assets, people who can, who can do this stuff. And that's what I mean by like technology. Technology is a great assistant, like a great resource to be able to apply. But uh, I love what you said. It's like it ultimately does come down to people and their competencies to be able to make the decision making or go through the decision making process. I was at USAR training last week, another example where, um, you know, we were talking about technologies and 
you know, basically we were telling the participants, it's really hard to break an ax. Like the power goes out, you, your ax still works and you can still get through this rubble pile. And so I, I think just understanding what the different tools can do for you, but not to rely on them only um, is, is uh, absolutely critical. So let me switch gears here for a second because uh, you're the NATO guy. You're my NATO guy right now. That's what I'm going to call you. Um, so I have been focusing, especially with my experience with NATO and talking to them about um, the systems in the U.S. and what it can do for their individual nation states. Again, not look NATO as, a, as an organization, but the individual countries. A lot of them just run out of military. It's a military-run organization, military setup. We have systems like that in place, but because of our laws, you know, we're not going to have the army take over emergency response in the country, right? Title 10 forces or whatever. So um, could you just name for our participants what lessons you've learned in the international community that could help the U.S. and then maybe what the U.S. can provide the international community, some different things that we could all gain from each other? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, Make you know, um, <laughs> I, I think what I think one of the most shocking things that I've seen, and maybe shocking is not the right right word, but you know, when I, I've been in some pretty terrible countries, and and what you find is that even with limited power, limited water, people are extremely resilient. Mm. And what I have found paradoxically, right, is is going into some of these countries where it's are you know just system systematically poor you know and just lacking infrastructure and things like that and the people are just dramatically more resilient than what you would find in downtown new york city right so when power goes out and water's off that's like another tuesday you know and but you do that in the middle of new york and it's riots in the street yeah all right and i think to a certain extent we have become more fragile because i see that people are um, incredibly resilient in some of these nations because what they've gone through for sometimes prolonged year, periods of conflict. Mm -hmm. And what that has also done was, and just in sort of my view and my personal opinion, it is it is forced a sort of locus of control and, and, and focus on the family unit, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you've seen is families and neighborhoods are actually drawn together to be able to support each other. And so when power goes out, when floods happen, you know, all these things, people are coming together and you see that organically within these communities because they've lived through this tremendous experience. And I don't know that that would happen in major urban cities in the United States uh, as, as much as I've seen it in other areas, right? And that's generally a byproduct of having a very, you know, sort of harsh conditions and harsh environment for a long time, which fortunately we haven't had in the United States. But, you know, that, I think that's just sort of reemphasizes your point about communities uh, and strengthening communities because it has been very evident to me the fact that these communities you know when the power goes out and we think oh my god power's out for an hour you know and then people lose their mind and really it, people go about their business and and some of these other societies and it's actually incredible it's just another thing they go to lunch or something like that and then that's it and so that's something that i, I observe sort of these these differences between you know societies as, and we could possibly learn a lot from that, that we need to sort of reemphasize communities and community resilience, because that's the foundation of everything. There's um, 
man, I could talk about this forever because you're hitting on this core concept that like people don't want to talk about, but like it really does come down to families. There was an FBI assessment of 17 years, uh, the 17 year period after Columbine. Um, and I'm sure someone's going to correct me because I'm going to be wrong here, but I believe it was 17 years. There was only one active shooter that didn't have a father in the home. And that's a, that's a, it's not a call on mothers. Obviously mothers are like the bedrock of society. Right. But, um, it just shows that like a family unit, a, a well-functioning family unit does a lot for people. And there's like all this data of clinical, uh, there's a journal of clinical psychology that talked about the, the role of families and the first eight years of your life. If you can, if, if you can be taught to make good decisions, um, then it will propel you, uh, you know, throughout the rest of your life. So it'll determine the rest of your life. And there's a lot of stuff, but I, as an emergency manager go to, you know, my city council and I say, Hey, we need to focus more on families. They're like, uh, oh, you know, how about we build another school or how about we make another program, you know? And so there's a, there's a lot to be said of, um, like what is the actual data telling us to do versus, you know, what's kind of easier because it's kind of a hard topic to address or, you know, it's an uncomfortable topic for people talking about nuclear families or whatever. Um, so that's, that's really interesting from a data perspective. The other call out you, you, you were talking about, again, going back to this core and creating great communities, um, oh, just for the listener's sake, um, a great case study would be a tsunami in America. No, no, not American Samoa, just Samoa. And because of the cultural um, affiliation with families, all the fisheries, as soon as they went out, those families moved up into the mountains, started working with the farming communities. When the waters receded, they went down, they used that same sheet metal, the same material that had been blasted by the tsunami, definitely would not happen in the U.S. They rebuilt their fisheries, and in three months, their economy went back to leveling out to where it previously was. Now, was the economy like Manhattan? Absolutely not. But it shows that there's there's something about a family culture and communities and uh, studies like that. My big question is, um, I, and I actually agree with you that in some ways we are much more vulnerable because if the power goes out for three days, people freak out because uh, they're not used to it. How do you build in to that, I wouldn't say hardening of systems with as in human systems of how do you get people to be more resilient without actually having them to have to deal with years of conflict? Is there a, is there a way to, to do the, uh, you know, level the field? That'd be my question to you. Yeah. So before I can answer that, or at least give my opinion on that, I'm not sure I'll have an exactly an answer to it, yeah. but let's talk about sort of that transitional period for the military through conflict and into what I, you know, crisis management to what I, I believe emergency management has a role. And so when we initially sort of start with a conflict or there's a conflict occurring and let's say the U.S. goes into a country or something like that, there's a tipping point that's generally there that, that we switch from sort of, you know, fighting off the bad guys to having partner forces, right? And there's a lot of sort of money and time and effort spent to be able to get to that tipping point. And so then we have these partner forces. And at that, that point in time, when we realize that we have a host nation that's a partner, then we have ideally created a more stable and secure environment. And that's where, in my belief anyway, and where I've had my experience, is that when that's where an emergency management sort of ideas and concept come into it. Because then we need to sort of 
freeze what we've learned at that community level, right? Okay, mm-hmm. you've been through a hardship and we need to remember that as we build the rest of the systems around you to support the fact that you have critical infrastructure, that your phone systems are working, that you have running power and water, mm-hmm. but still remain resilient. And so don't forget what you've been through. Don't forget that your, you know, your family, like we're talking about, is important, that your neighborhood and your community is important. But we need to capture that and then to be able to build the systems around it to where people are able to function and freely move within their community and still retain that. But this, all the supporting systems around them have been, as you say, hardened so that they can start to live a more consistent life in terms of security in that community. And so we get to that piece. And then there's a uh, sort of a maturity that comes along through that process to where the institutions are more developed. You know, The police is going through its reform. You're building out the court system. You're building out the fire brigades. You start looking at pre-hospital care systems levels of trauma centers and everything else that goes along with that. And, and, but that's usually in terms of years, you're talking, you know, five to maybe even a decade away in terms of development. And so really to, to your point about how do we capture that? And this is where I, coming back to your point about when you go talk to somebody on city council, what sort of struck me about that was if we say we're just going to build another school, isn't that just another version of applying technology, right? Yeah. Isn't that just another version of, well, can I just pay to fix that problem? And I think the human factor is discounted there. I think we have to sort of get to a point where we address the human factor and have these discussions. Because when you work in post-conflict or operational environments, it's all about that relationship with people on the ground. It's that human terrain factor that we have to manage in order for us to create effects. Now reverse that and then look at that in the United States. Well, how are we creating effects in the community? Well, it's gonna generally be through people because you can throw resources, but the school is only as good as the teachers and the people. Right. And, and if nobody shows up, there's no university. Right. So, I mean, this is sort of where you, you can, yeah. we can build a building all day, but if nobody wants to go, nobody's going to go. Yeah. And so I, I continue to sort of center around that idea of the fact that we have to start with the human element and have those hard discussions like you're talking about. And we have to, to sit through it. I think as leaders, as you mentioned, like we have to be comfortable with those with those discussions and, and we have to be OK with being uncomfortable and saying we don't have the answers. You know, I can't answer a question when somebody is complaining that the fact that they have had a court case for 10 years and, and it's past the statute of limitations because the court system's corrupt. Mm. Or, for example, and I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but for example, you know, in some countries, the fire brigade is the most corrupt institution in the nation. So you can imagine if for us in the U.S., you're saying the fire department is the most corrupt institution is a little bit unusual, right? Yeah. But, but in other countries, it's absolutely the most corrupt organization because they have all the permits they allow you to build or not build or whatever the case is. And, and so it's hard to have these answers, but you have to sit in that sort of uncomfortableness and be able to have that discussion. Yeah, no one's ever going to write a song F the firemen in the U.S., that's for sure. The, uh, you know, I, traveling, traveling outside the U.S. and um, working with, um, you know, from the police side, that's how I felt. I felt like some of these police agencies that I interacted with were like the most corrupt, like try didn't like the, the Grinch analogy, right? Like didn't want to touch them with a nine and a half foot pole or whatever. Um, but those people moving to the U S I understood much better of their hesitancy and why they push it back against dealing with police because bringing, a, a, you know, the U.S. is a hodgepodge of culture and it should be. It's kind of like the what's great about the American experiment. But the, um, the, the idea that, you know, if systems are corrupt in one area, that means there's going to be a lack of trust in others. And that goes back to kind of what this general discussion is about that human element. 
for my master's thesis talking about anthropology and disasters, one of the worst mistakes an emergency manager can make is going and bringing your culture and your culture of response to another country. And uh, there's there's plenty of case studies out there to show like, like, uh-oh, the UN just got eight, eight workers, uh, eight aid workers killed because they were putting people in black body bags, you know, which is in some cultures uh, considered a cursed body black bag. And so there was an uprising, you know, and, and just un- a lack of understanding of where you're going to. And I think that's a really good thing that emergency managers can do. Maybe they can't change the fact that we should all focus on families more. But what you can do is say, hey, if I'm hired to work in either a, a different county, different country, whatever, then I need to learn the local culture and customs and to be okay with that. Some things in culture are wrong, but most things are just different. And um, understanding what what is a, the acceptable level of success uh, for them and start building that process off of there. That would be my two cents. If you're going to give advice to emergency managers about what they can do now to think about the human element, especially from this international perspective, what would you say? I would say question your assumptions. Mm. So when you are talking to somebody, we're, we're constantly thinking in our mind that we know what somebody's going to say, we know where they're going, we, we're sort of predicting the answers before they happen, and it's sort of the conversation as well. And, you know, you it's been a, that's what a podcaster does. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what I have seen also, like, so if we take emergency managers outside the United States and there's sort of assumptions about how society works and what if you land into a country where there's no insurance, mm. right? And so what role does insurance play in the United States in terms of emergency management and disaster relief and recovery and all that? Huge, yeah. What if there's no insurance? People don't trust the insurance mechanisms. There is no property insurance. It doesn't exist. Nobody likes it. It's not a thing. It's for corruption and Mm -hmm. that's it. And so then what do you do if insurance doesn't exist? So we have to question our assumptions about how we think things are. So if you were going to a new community and you were going to go into a new environment and you're the outsider at that point, you know, I would just, from what I do internationally, from my perspective, just, you know, my opinion, I mean, I would spend time with people talking to them, listening and trying to understand. Don't assume you have answers and be like, oh, this is just like that, right? But I had this experience before because, you know, we just did one, two, and three and the problem was solved. It's not always the case. Uh, And so you have to, uh, you know, sort of keep those, keep your experiences in mind, but disregard any, any assumptions that you're making about the communities that you're working in and talk to people and spend the time understanding what's happening first before you make any decisions. And especially if you're going in at a higher level, because if you're going in at a higher level, you obviously feel like you're under some pressure and you want to, to you know, show some progress very quickly and how you're changing the world or whatever the case is. And you know, you're on a time frame, you're on probation, whatever the case is, you want to get things done, but you might be pushing in the wrong direction. And so one of the best things to do is just get into the community, talk to people, figure out what's going on, ask the really simple questions of if you were going to change something, what would you change? What would you make, what would make you feel better? What would make the community safer? And find out the real answers and find the underlying causes and then try and work through it. And I think this is because there's been a lot of discussion around what is emergency management, you know, sort of writ large over the last year or so, especially since the pandemic. And I, I tend to venture now into the, the side of where I think emergency management starts to get more into about how do we effectively govern in our communities, right? So it's the delivery of services. And the way that I look at that internationally is if you have a fragile state already and you fail in the delivery of basic public services, 
in many countries, it causes the collapse of a government, especially in terms of smaller governments, right? So you might have a, a, a nation of just a few million people, which could be an average size city in the United States, but that will force them into elections and then a prolonged period of two to three years of political instability just because they can't effectively respond to a wildfire or the pandemic or anything else. So it creates political instability and the entire system collapses. And that's what we generally have at risk here if they can't effectively deliver service, if they can't effectively govern and take care of the public and, and public safety. And so those are kind of where my head goes when we talk about those things. I think that's uh, I think that's a great launching point for people to think about. And uh, if you're gonna ask my opinion about changing anything in this conversation, I wouldn't, because it was a great conversation. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for coming back on or for coming on the show. And you've actually been on another podcast of ours, uh, uh, EM Weekly with Todd DeVoe. And so if you really like this conversation, if you're one of the people listening to the show, make sure you check out uh, Todd DeVoe and EM Weekly and um, try to find Kyle uh, King's episode there. Because this is, this is really big stuff. And this is like game changer. The way you think, the way you process uh, is, is huge. And, uh, you know, Kyle, I'm so grateful that you came on the show for sure. So... Um, with that, uh, we're going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, Kyle King is uh, with Capacity Building International. He's with the NATO. We've had this really great conversation. If you got something out of it, here's the shameless plug. Please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Send us a comment. You can do it on one of our videos. You can uh, send, Everyone likes to send us emails. Emails are great. But try putting it out on social media. We, we make that plug every time. Uh, for the Disaster Tough podcast and so that Kyle can respond directly so that we can uh, help you out. We can create a community as what Kyle was just talking about today. And we'll see you next week.